cliffcentral.com. Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com. Good afternoon. You're tuned to the Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. Absolutely lovely to be joining you this week. As usual, my name is Kingsley Kipuri and I'll be your host for the next hour. Hope you're having a lovely day. A bit gloomy here in Johannesburg. I hope wherever you are, whatever you'll be listening to the podcast, that the weather is sunny and there are butterflies galore. Um, I think I'm just feeling the spring fever, so I love this idea of being outside in shorts with butterflies all over the place. I'm joined in studio with my, my colleague, Greg Nicholson. Greg, how are you doing today? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me once again. <laughs> I like how every time you sound honored to be here, as if one of these days you'll get dropped from the team. Today, a bit of a, a, bit of a sober topic. Um, just in preparing for the show, Greg and I were really struck by the... By the by the by the disgrace uh, of what of what of what some people in our in our country in a post-apartheid society are having to go through. Today we'll be talking about at least for the first half hour we'll be talking a bit about uh, prisoners in remand, and then a bit later we'll switch to uh, Colombia, South American country, and and a, a groundbreaking referendum they held yesterday. Uh, that where the result was a bit shocking. So we're going to talk through. Whether people actually did vote against an end to the 50-year civil war? Are they voting against their own interests? Um, is this similar to the Brexit situation where, where people seem to be voting against their own interests? Or is there more to it? So we've got a, a great guest to, to be talking a bit about that. But first, as I mentioned, we'll be talking about prisoners here at home, here in South Africa. Uh, specifically talking about remand detainees. So these are people who've been arrested and either they've been refused bail or cannot afford bail. Um, and the, and, and looking into this, it's just absolutely unacceptable. We have, you know, up to 40,000 people in this country. That's over a third of the prison population that are in prison and their case hasn't been tried yet. In a country where the constitution guarantees that people are innocent until proven guilty, people are in prison, sometimes in solitary confinement, sometimes getting really unfair treatment, getting abused by the prison guards, getting abused by other inmates, and haven't been through court yet. So that's really unacceptable that 40,000 people in this country that's supposedly free, supposedly democratic, supposedly fair, that this portion of population, this portion of, of our countries has to live like this. So we'll be talking about this for the next half hour. Um, on the line, we have two uh, subject matter experts on this. We have Ariane Nevin, who's a national prison specialist at Sonke Gender Justice. And secondly, we have Lucas Mintung, who's the project coordinator of the Civil Society Prison Reform Initiative. So time to get started. Um, Ariane and Lucas, can you hear me? Yes, Hi. we can. Okay, wonderful. Um, so just to get started with Ariane, I'd love to start with you. And if you could just give us an idea of what are the conditions for some of these prisoners in remand? What is their experience and, and how would you say it compares to the experience of some of the, shall we say, regular inmate serving time? Sentence inmates. Um, I think the conditions, Justice Cameron did a, um, a prison visit at one of the remand centers in Cape Town, Polesmore Remand Detention Facility. He visited them in April 2015. And um, the conditions that he reported were extreme and inhumane. So you have up to 90 um, detainees sharing a cell that was built for 25 to 30. Um, you have people sharing single beds and sleeping on the floor without mattresses or without blankets. Um, he said the air was so thick it felt difficult to breathe. 
um, and sort of 90 people sharing one toilet, one shower. Sometimes the drains are blocked and they have to use the bucket system. Uh, very limited access to healthcare, and um, often we've had detainees reporting that they didn't have access to the ARVs or to TB medication. Um, and finally, um, they're locked up for very, very long hours because unlike sentenced inmates, unlike sorry, unlike sentenced inmates, they don't have access to rehabilitative programs. And they're supposed to get an hour of exercise a day. Sometimes this doesn't happen, which means they can be locked up 23 or 24 hours a day. So um, very, very bad conditions for Amman detainees. I mean, just hearing this just sounds, it just sounds unthinkable that people have to live like this, um, especially after not having been through court. And it sounds like they have you know, fewer rights than the, the regular inmates. How is it possible? What, what is happening that's, that's creating a situation where people who are supposed to be there temporarily have fewer rights than people who've already been sentenced? Ariane, if you could just respond to that. Um. So I think the problem doesn't just lie within DCS. The, the criminal justice system works very slowly. So you have people in there who who shouldn't be there. They're therefore nonviolent or a petty offence, um, or they're there because they can't afford fifty to fifty rand to five hundred rand bail. Um, and then it's not intended to be a long term um, situation. They're supposed to be in there pending, you know, bail or pending their hearing. Um, but because of postponements and the, the time it takes to carry out the um, <clears throat> trials and things, it takes a really long time. I think Lucas could also add to this. Lucas, go ahead. Yeah, um, I, I think we need to to regard the remand situation as symptomatic of, of things that go wrong earlier in the criminal justice production process. And, and the first point to make is that a very large number of people are arrested annually in South Africa. Some 1.5 million arrests are made. Uh, some of them are for serious crimes, but roughly just below half of them are for non-priority crimes. Um, and some of these people do end up awaiting trial. Once people are awaiting trial, it it does not, well, let me put it this way, even if a person has been arrested, it does not mean that that case is actually enrolled in the court. So people may spend some time in custody, um, prior to the t decision being made for case to be enrolled in court. And then the, the, the second or third problem is that the, the National Prosecuting Authority appeared to follow a strategy of selecting for success. So they will actually only actively prosecute cases where they believe they've got a real chance of a conviction. Now, this sounds all very fine and well, but the issue is it takes time to get to that point. And that's why so many people um, spend time awaiting trial. Roughly half of the awaiting trial population have been in custody for three months or longer. Hmm. Um, and three months is a long time to sit in an overcrowded cell, as, as Ariana's already uh, described. But then we also know from earlier research that half of the awaiting trial population will, um, their the cases will not proceed to trial. So their custody has been completely without purpose. There was never really a case to answer for. Um, and I think that is one of the grossest violations that is currently perpetrated in the name of justice. 
I mean, look, just following on that, so what happens to an individual who's been there for three months, who's been there for two years, three years, and their, their case doesn't seem to be coming up? What, what happens in that situation? There's no custody time limit under South African law, and, and we've been advocating for a mechanism that would at least uh, ensure a mandatory review of the progress of the case. Um, and, and one can, and we're not saying a time limit is necessarily the best way to do it, but that's one way to do it to say, you know, after three months in custody, a court must assess what progress is being made to this case, what are the issues, what are the prospects that the trial may actually commence in the not too distant future. Um, the, the Criminal Procedure Act makes provision for an investigation into an unduly delayed trial, um, but it's not a mandatory uh, mechanism, so the court does not have to use it. Um, so there's, there's there's little recourse that the detainee actually has to to apply pressure on the state to say, you know, you, you, I need to be tried. We need to determine whether I'm guilty or innocent. Um, and, and especially the high court cases can take very long. And, and, I, and I, I don't have exact data, but uh, certainly the regional court cases. I mean, I'm just thinking this, I mean, you're describing a situation that sounds, you know, incredibly bleak. And I'm, I'm curious about some of the reforms that, that, that have taken place in the past. If you could, perhaps Ariane could jump in here, talk about some of the, the attempts at policy and legislative reform and trying to fill some of these gaps and where they've succeeded and where some have failed. Yeah. Um, so we have acts in the, we have sections in the Correctional Services Act, for example, um, although as Lucas will point out as well, it's maybe not in the right place, um, saying that no remand detainee may be incarcerated for a period exceeding two years without the matter being brought to the attention of a court. But that's in the Correctional Services Act, not the Criminal Procedure Act, um, which is problematic. Then there's also um, there's a, there's a way, there's a recourse through the Criminal Procedure Act that says when a prison is overcrowded to the point of threatening the dignity, physical health or safety of an accused, which arguably many of our remand detention centres are, um, the head of the prison can make an application to release to the court to release the detainees who are accused that um, who are accused offences that qualify for bail, um, or who have been granted bail but can't afford it, or to amend the bail conditions imposed on the people in that that facility. Um, so there are those options. The NPA is also supposed to. Um, Use procedures that or apply for. Um, sorry, I'm trying to think of the right word, but apply for procedures where they, they use alternatives to custodial um, to custody. So having non-custodial sentences, bail, that kind of thing. So well, those I'm, are I'm, all sort of yeah. I just want to jump on the issue of bail that you've mentioned. I know I'm just trying to think in a country that as unequal as ours. I'm thinking how unfair. Uh, in some instances, the the the, the, lim- the 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 quantity set as bail for different crimes could be for different individuals in terms of affordability, and I'm curious as to where that conversation is in the country, and perhaps if there's any insight we can get from best practice in different countries about how how to make bail fairer for different individuals depending on their income and, and social standing. It was interesting. So we've we've had conversations with correctional services about bail, um, and something another interesting thing. This besides just the amount of you know of bail that is set is the requirements to be granted bail. You have to have a 
a proof of address um, and uh, apparently um, a shack in a township, for example, isn't sufficient to meet that requirement. So it's not just the amount, it's also where you live that will affect your your access to bail. Um, I think Lucas might be able to speak more about comparative examples. Yeah, I mean, we we recently uh, did some research in other African countries and, and especially in Kenya, um, bail is in fact used as a punitive measure where it's, it's even for a minor offense, it's set at thousands of dollars. Hmm. So there's, there's almost a vindictiveness from the bench to, to punish people because they are poor and, and to, to make, to place the possibility of bail outside their reach. Um, but I also want to pick up, uh, something that Ariana said, and and that it appears that there are other factors influencing um, decisions around bail. And there was a recent article by Jamila Omar from UCT um, with the heading "Penalized for Poverty," and it speaks exactly to these almost non-judicial factors that seem to influence bail decisions and because a person doesn't have a fixed address or they don't have sufficient assets mm. um, that it counts against them. Um, and yes, I, I can understand that the courts have a difficult job to do and that they must be mindful that they also have a public responsibility, that they must speak to, they must have all the facts before them. Um, before they they make a bail decision, but yet it must it must be a rational decision, and it must be a decision that is essentially bound by the constitution, and and that relates to amongst others uh, non discrimination and equality. Uh, and this sounds like people are being discriminated against because they are poor. Mm. Yes, I'm just coupling that with the, you know inequality in the country and how you know and how. You know how unreasonable that could be. I'm um, just just following on from that. I'm curious when we talk about you know prison reform when we talk about matters relating to prisoners. Um, Lucas, you could go first on this. I'm curious how difficult is it to get public sympathy, public support, public engagement um, on a matter like this? Is there perhaps a sense from people who are not part of who haven't engaged with the prison system that you know perhaps we don't care about people who've been charged or convicted or anything to do with prisons because they, they deserve it. They're criminals and, you know, they deserve it. I'm, I may make a, an overgeneralization <laughs> now, but in, in my experience, uh, and I've been involved in the sector since 1992, um, the more people understand the problem, the more sympathetic they become. <laughs> towards criminal justice issues, the need for reform, prisoners' rights, and so on. Yes, there are people um, who, who truly deserve to be locked up for the rest of their lives because they committed horrible crimes and, and they're a threat to, to the public. Um, but that is a relatively small percentage. My concern is more with how do we keep young, especially men, who are facing their first term of imprisonment and it will probably be for quite short, what alternatives do do we offer them to steer their lives in a slightly different direction than what it is currently heading? Um, and, and I think if one looks at, at, at the 
the bigger picture and, and what needs to be done with with young men facing um, conflict with the criminal justice system. Mm. My experience is then people are generally more understanding uh, and, and not so punitive and vindictive. Ariane, do you find the same? Do you find that the general public is is understanding of these issues, is willing to engage with these issues, or is there a sense of, you know, you know, crime is so terrible in South Africa, these people deserve it? Um, I think it's a mix. And it's I think what Lucas says is right. When you when you speak to people and you start explaining the ramifications of what our incarceration system is doing and how it's not actually stopping crime, um, the sympathy grows. And when you start showing that there are alternatives that work better, the sympathy grows. I think there's this common misconception that you have victims and you have criminals and there's no overlap. And in mm. fact, often criminals are in some sense victims, if not from crime, then from poverty or inequality, you know, um, and and it's very important to remember that. Um, the other thing that I've, I've noticed is that when you start showing how the way that prisoners are treated really impacts everybody else. So how if you want to beat TB, for example, in the general population, you need to beat it in prisons. Um, how prisons are a hotspot for HIV, um, how they perpetuate sort of gender norms that contribute to gender-based violence and all these things. And um, I think that if you can start showing people how, how the way that prisons are treated affects them, and why that's important as well. I think there's, there's more in, there's more sympathy. Um, and do you think there's any? I'm just trying to think of people listening in and, and perhaps feeling a bit outraged and saying this is unacceptable. Are there any ways that you know regular individuals, voters, um, and just regular citizens? Are there any ways they can perhaps put pressure on some of these departments or engage publicly to try and perhaps get more get more momentum going behind some of the reforms that you've pointed out are needed? Cool. <laughs> Um, I think pay attention, uh, write to Parliament attend meetings. Lucas, do you have any better ideas? I, I think, I mean, in, if we're talking about the general public, the, the general public's main avenue for strengthening accountability mm. within the state is through Parliament. Um, and, and over the last couple of years, uh, Parliament has been neglecting this portfolio um, mm. since the two committees on justice and correctional services merged. There's not been a lot of attention. Um, and, and I think we need to engage far more actively with Parliament because they are elected representatives. They are, their mandate is to hold the executive accountable. Um, and perhaps within all the challenges that we face as a society in transition, um, the, the correctional services portfolio has maybe slipped down the, the order of priorities. Um, I think it's also easy to, to think that, well, there's only about 160,000 prisoners. Why do we need to worry about them so much? The, the fact of the matter is, is that, it's not about the number of people in custody today. It is about the turnover of people through the prison system on an annual basis. And you can roughly, as a rule of thumb, take your daily custody figure hmm. and multiply it by three, and it will give you an estimate of what is the number of people moving through the prison system on, a, on an annual basis. Hmm. And then we're looking at 
a figure over 400,000 people, well, then it becomes significant. And that type of, of almost enforced migration um, has a very damaging effect on already fragile communities where returning prisoners find it very difficult to adjust. Uh, they are unwelcome. Um, they are marginalized. And, and there's a whole range of things that, that cause community instability, uh, bearing in mind that certain communities, and I mean geographical communities, contribute more to the prison population than other communities. Mm. I mean, just pointing out, you know, all these issues, I'm just trying to think of, you know, as we sort of wrap up the interview, of what are, what are some of the key, if you could point out some of the key, you know, legislative um, moves that need to be need to be taken, given resources. I know a lot of people will say we need perhaps more prison space, more capacity, and then the counter will be perhaps there's no, there's no money and it's, you know, economic growth and so on. So I'm wondering if there are key things that are within parliaments um, and the different departments' Ability to implement right now that you think would make significant gains to, to issues of, of, of prison reform and, and prisoners in remand? Look, I definitely don't think more prisons is the option. And I think correctional services would agree with me that if you build more prisons, you fill more prisons. And a lot of the things that we've talked about today, about you know introducing alternative custody, alternative sentencing or diversion programs or, for example, decriminalizing petty offenses like loitering and sex work, um, those kinds of things would be more impactful at the end of the day than building more prisons. Maybe replacing prisons that are broken down but not, not adding to them. Um, yeah. Okay, that's a good example of what not to do. Lucas, key legislative <laughs> moves that need to be taken. Yeah, I, I think a few, a few quick thoughts on this. Yes. Um, in, in 1998, Parliament passed what became known as the, the mandatory minimum sentences legislation. This has now created quite a headache for us, and we're sitting with in excess of 13,000 people serving life imprisonment. Now, that is significant. In 1995, there were 400 so that is a really, really significant increase. And, and generally, sentence tariffs have increased as a result of, of the minimum sentences and a few other things. So mm. we, we need to go back and rethink how people are sentenced. Um, I've already referred to a custody time limit for awaiting trial. Mm. I think it's high time that we, we put pressure on Parliament to say, you know, in, in the light of what the Constitution tells us, we need to put a cap on this. We can't just let it go on and on and on. Um, I agree with Ariane on alternative sentencing. The law is there. It's just not being implemented. The courts are not using the available sentencing options um, because they've lost faith in it because correctional services have messed it up. Hmm. Um, I think fourthly, and it's, it's not a law reform issue, Perhaps it is, because it relates to the, the, the prison's oversight body, the Judicial Inspectorate for Correctional Services, that we need effective investigations into human rights violations in the prison system. Um, without that, um, we will continue to see uh, injuries and fatalities uh, perpetrated by both uh, fellow prisoners and, uh, and, and officials. And then lastly, um, again, it's not so much a case of law reform, but people need to be prepared for release. And if you've 
sat in prison for three months or six months or two years awaiting trial, and then you expect us to go back and pick up your life where it was and, and carry on happily. Well, that's an unrealistic expectation. So we do need to look at that uh, release and support process. And I completely understand. Um, just before I let both of you go, I mean, Ariana, I'd love if you could just, going back to the personal personal story and the personal impact on this, I'd love if you could just share with us and give us an idea of the personal impact um, of some of these prisoners in Rahman and, and the impact on them of of being in these really terrible conditions for, for months going on years and how that's impacted them as individuals. Okay. I mean, I think one clear one is certainly related to health. Um, so we have stories from... Um, Rumand detainees who who went into Rumand uh, for three or four months and couldn't access their ARVs, um, and in the process, while they were in Rumand, um, contracted TB and came out and had to do treat, uh, take TB treatment. Um, we've had people who've gone in and left families without any form of support, financial support. So that's another the other side of the incarceration of the people left on the outside. Um, and the burden that leaves on sort of women-led households. Um, we have people who've been raped and assaulted multiple times. So I think the, the experiences are really, really extreme often. Um, aside from just the lack of dignity of having to live in those conditions, sleep on the floor without a blanket, if um, if you're unaffiliated to any gangs, then, you know, you have even fewer privileges. Um, so it's really extreme. And uh, we have experts witnesses who've, who've spoken about the effect that it has long-term on, on making people who come out hyper-aggressive um, to respond to normal situations as if it's threatening um, and to perpetuate really, really bad gender norms that they learn inside, on the outside, which is really bad. Thank you so much for that. Um, as much as we discuss policy and discuss some of the macro things, it's sometimes easy to forget that there are people at the bottom of this. So thank you so much. Ariane, Lucas, thanks for making time. Thank you. Okay, perfect. Um, you know, as we mentioned before, really, really, um, shall we say, sobering and reminder that, as you know, a lot of us enjoy freedoms out here. There's, there's some people who are completely being denied their constitutional rights um, to justice, to fair trial, and so on. So let's make sure to keep keep these issues in mind and try to and try to never forget that. You know, some of the discussions we have have a real impact on mm. on people in prison. We're gonna take a quick break. Um, we'll be right back just after this. Good afternoon. You're back with us on the second portion of the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. Just a massive thank you to the guests we had on in the first portion, talking about prisoners in remand. That's Ariane, the National Prison Specialist at Sonke Gender Justice, and Lucas, the Project Coordinator of the Civil Society Prison Reform. And also a massive thank you to Marche Arenze, who, who wrote a, a wonderful article on the Daily Maverick that we published there about prisoners in remand. Um, and it was sort of such a touching story and she, it was called Remanded and Forgotten, the fate of South Africa's prisoners who have not yet been tried. So a massive thank you to her for helping organize that portion and making that possible. Now to change direction somewhat and speak about Colombia, the South American country that had a, a massive referendum yesterday, um, that surprised a lot of people in country and 
and across the world. Um, so after 52 years of civil war, we had 200,000 lives taken, most of them civilians. So the country that's been in conflict for a very long time. And a lot of people saw this referendum as a chance to, to end that. Um, and, and, and a lot of people are surprised that perhaps has this country voted against its own interests? Are they voting to continue the conflict? Are they voting to continue the landmines and deaths and destruction? Or is there perhaps more there? To give us some insight on this, we'll be chatting to Stephanie Nolan, the Latin America Bureau Chief at The Globe and Mail. Stephanie, can you hear us? I can indeed. Good morning. Okay, wonderful. So, My, I guess it's not your morning, is it? It's... <laughs> No, not quite. It's, it's just, it's about 1.30 here. I know you've been in Johannesburg before, so you can sort of picture our, our wonderful weather here. But you're in Rio, so I imagine uh, things are much better on that side. Um, you know, I lived in, uh, I lived in Joburg for six wonderful years, and I miss it every day. But Rio is, uh, Rio is also pretty good. <laughs> I can imagine. Not, not suffering. <laughs> I mean, I can imagine how crazy things are for you, and I just love to jump into this. I mean... Could you just first give us some context? I mean, this issue is not something we've covered on the show before, so it's just Colombia and the political situation. So if you could just give us some context going back into this five decades of, of guerrilla war. How did it start? What has kept it going? And what's what's behind this this long, long period of conflict? Well, it's. I'm really glad, actually, to be speaking with South Africans about this because I've been in Colombia for the last couple of weeks reporting on this, and it's somewhere that I've been going over the past few years. And every time I'm struck by some parallels with South Africa and with the issues that I covered in South Africa around transitional justice and reconciliation. And when I used to go and speak with negotiators on behalf of the FARC, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, who were the rebel group in this in this peace accord that, as you say, is now in tatters, um, with both the FARC and with the government, South Africa was a big reference for them. And, and the lessons, uh, there were a lot of people there looking closely at lessons learned in South Africa's process and how they would be relevant in Colombia. Hmm. And I can tell you, last Monday, <laughs> Colombians really thought that they were having their Mandela moment. You know, there was this big signing ceremony for this peace deal. And uh, yesterday and today were supposed to be the first days of the new Colombia. And instead, you have a country that's just reeling under, you know, what's just happened and what happens now. Um, the conflict, there's been 52 years of war, mm. as you mentioned, but it, this conflict actually goes back even a decade more than that. Um, starting in 1948, Colombia had a decade of civil war that started out just between political parties, but eventually grew to be kind of between wealthy urban-based elites. And as so often is the way of these things, it was really fought on the back of small farmers who were known as campesinos in Colombia. And at the end of it, a group of campesinos started to organize to live together in a community where they could defend themselves. And they were attacked by governments uh, and in 1964. And that became, that was their armed response when they fought off government was the creation of the FARC. But broadly, this has been an issue about the fact that Colombia has always been quite politically polarized, that it had a, a very small, wealthy elite that essentially controlled the political system. And even as the country got more and more prosperous, and especially in the last sort of 10 years or so, it's been a really successful economy, you had this huge chunk of the country who were left out of that. And land reform in particular never happened. People don't have ownership rights over their land. They have never had the possibility of becoming more than just subsistence farmers. Because of that, of course, you had um, uh, a lot of motivation for those small farmers to grow coca, the key ingredient in cocaine, because obviously they got better, better paid for that than they did for corn. 
And so there became this kind of nexus between Colombia's um, sort of political exclusion and land reform issues got merged with narco-trafficking as the rebels became essentially one of the most influential drug trafficking organizations in the world as a way of funding their struggles. And all of that was supposed to be addressed, the land reform, the political participation, the drug trafficking, all of that was a part of the peace deal that was uh, supposed to be ratified on Monday. Mm. Um, but in the end, that's not really what it fell apart over. I mean, this is just, I mean, incredible. I remember a lot of people writing, a lot of articles, a lot of, you know, experts saying that the, the peace deal was guaranteed to be, to be a passed sure in, in the, in the referendum. And they would, you know, direct quote yeah. saying guaranteed to go through, almost guaranteed to go through. So as someone, yeah. you know, you who's much closer to the situation, now looking back and seeing that a lot, the, 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 the vote didn't get enough, enough votes or enough people voting for the peace deal to go through. Looking back, can you, can you think back and try to analyze why it didn't get the kind of votes that it needed? Yeah, I mean, I think there's three reasons. One is, one is that a lot of Colombians could not live with two components of the deal. And those were the idea, first of all, that FARC leaders who are guilty of crimes against humanity, I mean, they've been tried in absentia and found guilty of uh, massacres, forced recruitment of children, uh, forced displacement, sexual violence, narco-trafficking. I mean, you know, these the, the people who are signatories to this deal are guilty of some very serious crimes. And so under this transitional justice deal, there was no guarantee that they would, in fact, ever serve jail time. The FARC refused to accept that its leaders would have to go to jail because they felt like that undermined the legitimacy of their struggle. Mm. So... Uh, you know, they don't consider themselves guilty of anything except fighting for the survival of the peasant farmer group that they represent, right? So, uh, and, and, you know, obviously people who stepped on landmines that they laid or whose, you know, civilian parents or children were held by them as prisoners for 10 years at a time in the jungle don't see it that way. So the transitional justice process said that they would serve, if they testified before a new special court in a truth and reconciliation process modeled on South Africa's, if they testified in this court and they told the full truth about their crimes, uh, including you know the material support that they got from other actors, the resources they used and where those resources came from, uh, that they would serve up to eight years of restriction of liberty. So their movements would be controlled, but it wouldn't be jail. And that was this kind of weird compromise they came up with mm. in Havana in the negotiations that was the best that the FARC would accept. You know, the government, government negotiators really felt like, look, we were at this for six years, and, and this is the best deal, and, and this is what, what we're going to get. So that was a real sticking point for people, that these people must go to jail for at least some period of time. The second thing was that the deal gave the FARC, supposedly today, the FARC was supposed to transition from being a rebel organization to being a political party, a Marxist-Leninist political party. And they were guaranteed seats in Congress for the next two elections. And that also just infuriated people who feel like the FARC have blood on their hands and they have no right to be there in, in Congress and certainly not without getting elected. And of course, on the other side, this was incredibly important for the FARC, because again, they say our struggle was about the fact that our people have been shut out of the political system forever. We've never, you know, the rich elites control this political system. And, and I apologize, Kingsley, if you can hear that racket. There are monkeys in the trees outside my office. No, I mean, it adds, it adds, it adds to the color and excitement of <laughs> South America. Rainforest feeling. That's yeah, it. I have a tree full of monkeys. So oh, yeah. That's, that's what the screaming is. <laughs> 
Anyway, they feel like this political participation, again, is a recognition of what they struggled for. So the FARC insisted on having it. Obviously, a large number of Colombians couldn't live with it. But, you know, when you say people just didn't vote, I think this is the... I think this is the second point, the second thing that went wrong in terms of passing this deal, is that people were, uh, it wasn't apathy, it wasn't laziness, it was real indecision. You know, I interviewed dozens and dozens of Colombians over 10 days of, of writing in the run-up to the referendum, and incredibly often I heard people say, I don't know what to do. I just don't know what to do. I want peace. I want the war to be over. I'm exhausted. I want the world to be different for my children. I also, I can't stand in that voting booth and put a cross on a ballot that says these guys will never go to jail. And I think genuinely, you know, much more than laziness or apathy, it was just real indecision that kept people from voting. I think that uh, that's, and then, and then, you know, throw in a hurricane. Hurricane Matthew hit the Caribbean coast of uh, of Colombia on Sunday on voting day, and that was a huge area that probably would have voted yes, where we know that voter turnout was incredibly low, and in some cases, poll stations didn't open at all. So we, that was a factor as well. I mean, thank you for the thorough breakdown. I mean, I'm, I love that you brought up this issue of transitional justice, and it's something, as you know, that's heavily debated here in South Africa with with uh, especially now a, a, you know, a lot of people, a lot of younger people, uh, questioning some of the compromises that were made um, for South Africa to transition into into democracy. So, do you think perhaps some of what we're seeing in Colombia, some of the failures of of, of the South African model that's been adopted there, that that says if people come forward, if you tell the truth, um, that 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 is sufficient to have this re- reconciliatory foundation to go forward with, as opposed to an emphasis on on people being tried as criminals and serving some kind of actual time. You know, I. I think Colombia almost didn't get there, although if they can salvage some aspect of this deal, which is really an open question, then maybe they will. But I often ask this question. I asked it of the government negotiators that I talked to. I asked it from the transitional experts who were there in Havana. I interviewed them in Havana when I was there to cover the peace process when it was still going on. Um, Those were people who were very familiar with South Africa's process. And and for me, as a person who, who covered South Africa through some of the more difficult years of that transition and who's watched it since I left, I felt like there was maybe an overconfidence in Colombia that, oh, this is like truth, like a TRC, like that'll just work. Mm. And, and, you know, to be honest, I've subsequently seen that in Sri Lanka, in Bangladesh and in mm. other places where I've, I've covered these issues because I think there's still this mythology around okay, we'll do this process and, and people will tell the whole truth and then the other side will forgive them and, and then it'll be okay. And it's still this magic formula where people haven't actually looked at South Africans and you know the people who are held up as the sort of models and the mm. paragon of this process. South Africans are having really honest conversations about did this work? Is this feasible? Can you do this? What does your society look like when you try and do this? And the rest of the world is still saying, hey, let's try and be South Africa. Mm. You know, um, and people aren't maybe keeping up as much. So I said to these negotiators, like, okay, like you're really confident you're going to get the full truth from the FARC commanders because, and, and, you know, they, one advantage that, that they have in, uh, in Colombia compared to South Africa is that, you know, that it is the, the state per se is not changing. Right. And so they do have access to these years and years and years of documentation and records. Okay. So they do have some sense of what, People are, you know, you're not relying on the apartheid government to disclose everything to you, right? Mm. Like you, you have the records, right? But 
I said, you know, so you're going to like, where is your line going to be about what's enough truth? Who are your commissioners going to be? Who are the people on whose shoulders you're putting this that that you're going to deem this enough truth or the full truth or sufficient truth? Mm. And and then what actually what's your process going to be for forgiveness? I mean, they Columbia's process was peace process was built around having victims at the center. They took victims of all sides in the conflict of the mm. government of right-wing paramilitaries who were backed by government of the FARC. Mm. They, they took them to Havana to testify or to, to speak directly to negotiators and so that they would feel like their concerns were present in the, in the deal. But what, like who, so some of those people came out in support of the yes campaign and said, I'm going to forgive. I need to forgive to move mm. forward. Who's who, like, where's your barometer on who's forgiven and what's enough forgiving? And, and when, you know, how those communities where you're going to demobilize the FARC and bring them home, how are you going to keep them safe? How are you going to guarantee that everybody in that community has moved on to the point that no one's just waiting for the chance to start killing people, mm. you know? Mm. And there were no, nobody seemed to have really got that far. Like, I think there's this kind of mythologizing around how if you can do a TRC, things will be better. And people aren't necessarily looking at the lessons that have come out of South Africa. I mean, I'm, I'm curious as to what, to what happens now. I mean, we had this massive momentum <laughs> and excitement. Curious. And there was so much excitement, this revolutionary peace yeah. deal. Everybody's happy. Revolutionary peace deal. Massive referendum. And now there seems to be this moment of sort of shock and everybody seems a bit paralyzed as to as to what to do now what, what do you see yeah. what do you predict as kind of what's going want to see what we're going to see play out at least in the short term you know literally the, when i started you know calling around frantically after this shock result on sunday night people within the government team mm. just say we have no plan b there is no plan b okay so i left I was with the FARC for the end of last week, and I left them in this camp, starting to gather, gathering their weapons. There were thousands of fighters there already. Today was supposed to be the day that they started moving into demobilization camps. Mm. They're obviously not going. <laughs> so that the government and the FARC have both said, they both said Sunday night that they remain committed to peace and that a bilateral ceasefire remains in place okay. for now, okay. which obviously is better than the worst case scenario, mm. right? The government immediately sent some negotiators to Havana to meet with the FARC, but the government's lead negotiator quit. Um, and, you know, hard to blame him. He's given 24-7 of his life to this for six mm. years. Mm. And he must, I, you know, I can't imagine how he would go back to that table. Um, the, I think there's a real question about what the FARC does because, you know, one question is just what do they live on now, right? I mean, as of today, they were supposed to be in the care of the UN, up until now, they financed themselves through kidnapping, drug trafficking, and extortion. They're going to need to eat, right? So what do we assume that they do now, like in this weird limbo, right? Mm. I mean, as of today, they were supposed to have amnesties. They don't have amnesties anymore. They're not going to put their guns down. Where are they going to go? No answers to that question. And the government has said now that it'll meet with the opposition who led the no campaign. But the no campaign is demanding that FARC leaders go to jail and that they don't get a role in the political process. The FARC's two conditions for being in negotiations or talking about peace is that they is that they don't go to jail and they join the political system. So 
how do you get a new deal out of that? I have absolutely no idea. It's it's a it's an absolutely disastrous mess, actually. That's a, that's a, that's a wonderful note to end on. It's an absolutely disastrous mess. Thanks, thanks for the clarity, Steph. My, it's my specialty. <laughs> Stephanie, we're just about to let you go, but I'm going to challenge you on air so that you can't say no, that we need to do a follow-up sort of conversation about this transitional justice and poke holes perhaps in the South African case study a bit and compare it to Sri Lanka and Colombia and so on. Uh, it would be a pleasure. I, after my time in South Africa, I became a complete transitional justice nerd. So I've been go. following these issues all over the world. Absolutely. Stephanie, thank you so much. I'm, I'm sure we'll chat to you again to come back to this issue. It's a pleasure. Thanks for calling. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. Uh, that's Stephanie Nolan, uh, the Latin America Bureau Chief at the, at the Globe and Mail, who's been you know, covering this and, and was one of those people who was you know, at least from her writing, quite certain that the referendum would go yes and that there would be a peace deal in place. And yet here we are. Just going to the last portion of the show, and, and Greg, I wanted to turn to you. You haven't said too much so far in the show. I just chat a bit about for the last sort of four or five minutes about Fees Must Fall. Uh, we had an imbizo yesterday um, that looks like it, it, it yielded a whole lot of pointless pointless conversation and, and, and political posturing. And today, just before we came in, we saw scenes from scenes from vits of of, 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 of clashes between with, between student protesters and police. And it seems to be an absolute mess to use the words of Stephanie. Yes, certainly. I think um, maybe two things to point out in the yeah. few minutes that we have left. Um, I think they have, some universities certainly have made attempts to uh, really engage students and um, meet on their demands. And for example, at UCT, I think they spent three days meeting with protest leaders, student leaders, um, trying to work out how and if they could come to a resolution to allow the academic program to continue. In the end, they weren't able to get a deal, but it looked like they, they at least tried their best, mm. is at least how it looks from the outside. Some other universities I don't think have done as much as they can. Um, and I think a lot of people might have underestimated the students' resolve um, on demanding a commitment from the government yep. to free education as well as that certain issues at different campuses be worked out. I think that the government, as they started to realise this thing's actually pretty real. It's pretty hectic. It's spreading. There are, there are dire warnings from vice chancellors at different mm. institutions saying that they're going to have to close down yeah. campuses for the whole year and, and that will severely affect, you know, graduates' chances. Like, imagine you can't graduate. How do you recruit next year? And right. How do you catch up the time? How do these guys go in and get a job? Yeah. Things like that, you know. So I think that's, that was the context that we came into the, the, the government in Bizor yesterday where the Department of Higher Education and Training um, called together a whole bunch of stakeholders, students, um, union leaders, uh, university leaders, and the keynote address was delivered by President Zuma. And I think Zuma and both the higher education minister, Bladen Zamande, both once again underestimated students' resolve uh, and commitment to this cause. And they essentially, I think, came from a position where they reiterated the past things they said and tried to get students on board with what they've already proposed and, and perhaps, perhaps thinking maybe these students just don't understand what we're saying. But I think what came out of that in Bizo was actually just further division. And it was now, now on TV for everybody just to watch, you know, how these actual negotiations have been going on. And the, the approach from, from the state in these discussions, I think, or at least what we saw yesterday 
was one, I think, I think it's fair to say that it was a very arrogant approach. It was, it was us telling you how these things should go rather than us talking and giving and taking and trying to find a solution, trying to stay in the room um, until we can until get we some yeah. sort of progress. And I think one of the things that really frustrated the student leaders who were there was that the president left after giving his speech, essentially. And while while the presidency now has said that he was always going to leave, that was clear when he was there, I think – the key thing is that these students feel that they haven't been listened to over, you know, it's been over a year of discussions and yeah. talks with the higher education minister. So they wanted to engage the president and that didn't happen. And so then today with, with these campuses trying to open, the only way they can open if students or protesting students are committed to their demands, the only way they can open is with intense security and intense police response, um, almost militarization of campuses. And it's no surprise actually to see what we're watching. You know, we're watching on, on TV. Yeah, on the NCA just the, now. yeah, these live images of, of quite violent clashes between police security and pro and student protesters. And I don't think anyone for anyone who's been following what's going on and the steps that have, that have been taken, that this should come as a surprise. It was, it was almost inevitable that this is going to happen considering that no one was able to to take, I think, the extra step perhaps that they needed to take to avoid this happening. And I think the relying on police and security services to try and keep these campuses open, this is this violence is a byproduct of that. And there you have it. We can only hope that perhaps things calm down either from the student side or at best um, a show of leadership. From, from, I would love to see a show of leadership from the government and coming in and not, it doesn't, leadership doesn't mean granting free education immediately. Leadership means having a conversation. It means discussing the demands. It means trying to find a middle ground. It means proposing a plan. It means being visible. And we haven't seen any of that from anyone. I think, but I think at the moment it's just a matter of these competing tension, these competing forces, both, both pulling in different directions and, What's gonna, where this thing will go, which will, will depend on which tension is, is, is the strongest. And there you have it. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. What happens when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object? I guess we'll find out on next week's show. Thanks for tuning in. Daily Maverick Show. We'll see you next week, 1 to 2 p.m. as usual. Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com. CliffCentral.com